Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm happy to have Dan Ward and Matt McGregor back on the podcast, and they're joined by Pete Modigliani, and it's about time that we've had them on. They've all managed programs at the U.S. Air Force and now work at MITRE. We're here today to discuss their newest paper, 5x5, Five, Five, Five Disciplines of Five Strategic Initiatives for the Pentagon in the Digital Age. Dan, Matt, Pete, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks, sir. Let's dive right into it. So. We're here to talk about acquisition, of course, and you guys are some acquisition gurus. And one of the big recent developments in the last few years is the adaptive acquisition framework, of course. And folks are calling it the biggest overhaul of the acquisition system in decades. But your team at MITRE has taken like a much larger vision of this big A acquisition system, first with a paper on requirements that you guys did last year, and now with your five by five paper this year. So can you first set the scene for us? What has been going on in acquisition the last few years and put that into context and what's come out of that? Sure, I, I can get started. So if we take a bigger step back, years ago, we had better buying power. Ash Carter and Frank Kendall laid out a series of 30 plus initiatives focusing on achieving better affordability at better buying power. And back then it was really focused on you know controlling costs, uh, reducing non-McCurdy breaches and the like. But starting around 2016 to the current period, Congress has really been a very active partner in driving DOD to go faster, adopt greater flexibility, and new pathways, delegate decision authorities. And we've really seen some big changes over the last three to four years. So when Ellen Lord came in as the undersecretary for acquisition, she moved out on the adaptive acquisition framework. It might have played a big role with that. So it was breaking up that big, you know, monolithic 5,000 series process into a dynamic array of six acquisition pathways and really helped to formalize some of the you know, various elements like urgent operational needs that have been around for a while and business systems, as well as introducing the new ones, middle tier of acquisition and now the software acquisition pathway. Both were direct, directed by Congress to really enable that speed and agility, drive the modern approach to doing business, provide more flexibility, exemptions from the JSIS requirements process, and really experiment with new models. As part of that, Congress also directed and pushed DOD to delegate decision authority. No longer is ATL, the old ATL, as the milestone decision authority for most of the MDACs. All but about eight or nine got pushed down to the service acquisition executives, and they in turn pushed a lot of the decision authorities down to the PEOs. We really embraced that to say decisions are made closer to program execution, and it's really shaping OSD's oversight role to more of a policy and structure perspective as opposed to specific program oversight. Yeah, the, the major programs, the F-35s, will always have OSD-level oversight, but it's really focused on getting those policies, those processes in place. And then the final you know, key point is really in the ANS organization, they have a new organization called Acquisition Enablers. Stacy Cummings was the director, and it really embraced the, hey, we're here to enable program success. 
We're here to enable the workforce to be successful, deliver better capabilities faster. So it's really talking about empowering program managers and decision authorities to move out, to tailor the environment, and continuously improve all of our processes. So let's get into the current state and what's deficient there and what your future vision is for each of these kind of big A acquisition areas. So maybe let's uh, start with uh, Dan Ward here on the requirements front. Where are the requirements lacking and, and what needs to happen there? Yeah, so requirements, that's where this business starts to a, a large extent. And I'm rather, I put a, a good stake in the ground to try and make the case that our requirements should be rooted in three things, speed, thrift, and simplicity. When we write a requirement that we know full well is going to take 15, 20 years and a cast of thousands working for decades, like when we write our requirements that sort of nudge our efforts in that direction, then we shouldn't be surprised when it takes longer and costs more and ends up doing less than what, what was promised. So if we are writing our requirements, again, with speed, thrift, and simplicity in mind, requirements that can be satisfied on a short timeline with mature technologies, or I think Heather Wilson said, uh, no more than one miracle per program. If we're expecting to develop three kinds of unobtainium on the same project, man, that just really puts us in a high-risk proposition for being able to deliver on time, on budget with all the features and functions that we promised we'd, we'd deliver. But when we focus on speed, thrift, and simplicity, I just, I find that increases the likelihood that we're going to deliver something that's affordable, something that's available when we need it, and something that's effective when we use it. And so if we want our systems to be affordable, available, and effective, yeah, speed, thrift, and simplicity really should be the, our touchstones and our our guiding principles for how we write our requirements in the first place. But I know Pete has some thoughts on this as well. Let me, let me toss it over to him. Yeah, with, with the adaptive acquisition framework, it's that dynamic array of six different processes. So really tailoring the requirements process. We really need to attack, in addition to 2021 being the year of PPB reform, we also need to tackle adjacents to really get at the heart. And Charles Hyten has really been a vocal critic prior to becoming the vice chairman. He was a vocal critic of JSITS and said it's an industrial age process. We really need to focus on the digital age, the speed of software. So getting those tailored set of processes to say, we're not going to have all the requirements defined up front and they're going to be locked down for the next decade, but really get that dynamic array. What are you trying to acquire? Is it a major aircraft? Is it software? Is it a system? Are you trying to do rapid prototype to accelerate learning? Let's tailor our requirements, processes, our documents, our culture around that, and really focus on iterating. How can we rapidly exploit commercial technology and then build on that based on our learning, our interim performance, and then operations and threats that continue to evolve? Yeah, so that you mentioned the iteration, because again, when I talk about speed, thrift, and simplicity, those work if you do them iteratively. If we just have a, a small program with a tight budget and a super short schedule and a really small team developing some you know, near-term technology, that approach only makes sense if it's part of an incremental iterative portfolio strategy. And so that iterative piece of it and the portfolio piece of it are all wrapped into this approach to requirements uh, generation and management. Yeah, I'm with you on the need for that kind of ecosystem around it is, I guess, too often we look at a program in a vacuum and we just say, oh, here it is. And we put all this analysis into it. And sometimes we bundle things in there because it takes so long to get it through and then get money for it and all this thing. So speed, thrift and simplicity in terms of the requirements themselves, but then also the process around the requirements in order to get them there. What was interesting about the adaptive acquisition framework was it spawned off of some of these statutory authorities 
And in there, they had these big implications for requirements that were not really spelled out. It's just, you don't have to do the JSIS process, but you have to do something. And it's just, what is that something, right? Can you guys give us a little bit of insight into what specifically are the services thinking about in terms of what these processes for software and middle tier look like in terms of requirements? Sure. It was uh, pretty comical when you're given an exemption from something that sometimes the muscle memory, sometimes the bureaucracy then just defaults back to doing something that looks a lot like the bureaucratic process you were given the exemption. So one service, when you said, hey, for middle tier, so it's rapid prototyping, rapid field designed uniquely different from being a you know, major system. They then developed a mini JSITS process where you had to do extensive documentation and then extensive oversight reviews. So that kind of goes back to a longer debate that we've had for years on what's the true intent and purpose of middle tier. That's for another day. For software, the software acquisition pathway built in a new model called the capability needs statement that really is trying to capture that. Here's the high level need from the operational perspective. Lower level details will be spelled out in roadmaps and backlogs in close coordination with the user and the senior sponsor. That's a much more iterative approach as Dan had talked about. But then the other key aspect that we're trying to convey is the broader portfolio-centric approach. All requirements, all the budgets, it's very program-centric that I can define everything up front and show one stovepipe system. But one of the key areas is really driving that enduring set of requirements for a broader portfolio or mission area, that you're going to have a dozen or more programs then deliver capabilities, deliver that integrated suite of capabilities against, and clearly defining what are the operational perspectives. We call them measures of force effectiveness to say, hey, if the more capabilities you deliver, here are the big factors, here are the big measures we want you to move the needle on and not just overly specific program-centric or system-centric requirements. In your first paper that you guys came out with last year, you talked about enterprise level requirements, right? And you were just saying there for an individual program, like for software acquisition pathway, we use capability needs statements at a higher level. We don't detail everything. All those details are on the roadmap. And so the next piece of that, first we start with the requirements and then that gets handed off into the planning, programming, budgeting, execution. So how do we get funds for those things? And then we get into acquisition, right? So it's funny that the reform started at the end of that cycle and then it's slowly working its way back towards the front ends. But let's get into budgeting because of course that's been a little hobby horse of mine as well. And let's bring Matt McGregor into this one. Pete brought up this idea of portfolio capabilities and how are you guys thinking about budgeting in this new adaptive budgeting framework to go along with requirements and acquisition? Yeah, this is, of course, the harder one in many ways, because it's easy to say, do requirements a certain way, do portfolios, like, I feel like you can get sometimes you can get buy in on a lot of on a lot of that on a lot of those things. But when it comes down to, we're going to take money from this legacy program and move it to this program, it starts to get more politics and more consternation. So one of the biggest challenges is going to be that you can come up with we could devise portfolio requirements. We could come up with portfolio acquisition strategies. But I think the hardest challenge for the department, both with internal politics and external politics, is going to be embracing the idea of a portfolio budget that supports new innovative ways of doing acquisition. So to me, that's our greatest challenge. So ideally, what we would like to see is if we were able to have a portfolio set of requirements to say, we have this mission in the South China Sea, we need to get forces into these particular islands to support operations in this theater. And so that's the mission is to 
be able to land forces safely and be able to execute what you, what you need to do. So if we had a set of missions that we needed to accomplish and say, yeah, what capabilities do you need? It may be a mix of air. It might be a mix of manned, unmanned. It could be all kinds of things in there. But if you were able to devise a portfolio requirements approach, then you would need to feed that with a portfolio budget approach, which would have to, in some ways, match that. So it would be a lot more flexible in terms of the trade-offs that could be accomplished to say, okay, we can accomplish this mission 10 different ways. We don't really know what the right answer is right now. So we're not going to set requirements. We're not going to do acquisition strategies that can't be adapted because we don't know everything right now, but we're going to give the acquisition community the mandate to go figure this out. And it allows the PEOs and the program managers to go say, what's out there in the commercial space? What's out there maybe maturing in a laboratory somewhere or in the academia? And you can pull that in and say, you know, these six things together, what Pete was getting at, these six things together can provide this suite of capabilities to accomplish that mission. But if you have a budget that is program-centric, as we are today, and even I would even say we're not even just program-centric, we're five levels below the program in terms of uh, approvals for different activities. If Unless you can bring that up a, a few levels, I don't know that you ever get there because you have to adapt often within that two-year budget cycle. When you see an opportunity in the commercial sector, you need to be able to jump on it, especially with non-traditional contractors where you may not have two years to wait to be able to take a great concept or a great prototype that they've developed and mature to meet some new capabilities. So our idea is to have more of uh, missionary portfolios that would enable that portfolio construct. But more importantly to that, I think we need to get at the point with Congress, DOD does, where they are viewing the budget as an enabler of strategy versus an enabler of platforms. And I think that's going back to what I said was our biggest challenge. I think that is our biggest challenge is to raise the level up 10 notches to say, let's talk about strategic capabilities and how they map to mission areas and not talk about individual platforms. So it's such a great point. And, and it really begins to blend this idea of portfolio management and how that relates to our investments, because the portfolio management approach and the portfolio investment approach, I think, need to be linked. Uh, and a guy named uh, Harry Markowitz won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1990 for his work on what he called modern portfolio theory. And my favorite thing about it is you can summarize Nobel Prize winning economics in a single sentence. And he basically did the math to prove that, and here we go, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Like that's his whole point, but the more nuanced single sentence summary of his work, he said a diverse portfolio of smaller investments is the optimal way to maximize your return for a given level of risk. So let me say that again. A diverse portfolio of smaller investments is the optimal way to maximize our return for a given level of risk. You know, that has huge implications for how we invest our money. If we want to maximize our return, maximize that balance between risk and return, a diverse portfolio of smaller investments is the optimal way to do that. And you don't need to take my, my word for it. That's the Nobel Prize winning economist who set out and basically proved that. And it's so relevant to how the military makes investments and develops new technologies strategically, not just at an individual program level. Yeah, I feel like it's almost even more powerful in the DoD because you have all these spillovers from these various projects as they learn what each other are doing and competing against each other. So I guess potentially some of that portfolio effect that you're talking about from Markowitz is actually due to the market nature of the companies and their competition in the environment that they live in. And you can take advantage of that, but also the uncertainty of that rather than just putting all of your eggs in one monopoly. 
But then the portfolio theory, I think as Matt was talking about, also has this added benefit of the DOD isn't in control of its own destiny necessarily anymore with commercial R&D being so big. You can't say that DOD is going to be able to predict future commercial R&D because that would be absurd, right? Maybe it can, even if it could predict its own trajectory, it can't predict what everyone else is going to do. So you need those quick on-ramps to be able to insert commercial technology, or if there's new changes in threats or environments or any other type of thing, you need to be able to rapidly adapt to that. I want to push back a little bit on what Matt was saying, though, in terms of the requirements, because he brought up this idea of like mission requirements that relate to, oh, we need to land troops, let's just say in Taiwan or something. Let's just say defending Taiwan is a mission. In my mind, that mission requires, as you said, assets and platforms from all parts of the services. And so potentially everybody is going to be involved in helping to supply and equip that. So if I write a requirement for defending Taiwan, then everybody's involved. And then how does that you say that should map over to the mission area portfolios for budgeting, but I don't see that that's actually what came out in your paper. So I wonder if you want to think about or rephrase how you think about what does a requirement look like and how does that map to a budget, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I think you can break the missionaries down into multiple things. I, I was using that example because I think that we look at the South China Sea fight is that's where we're pivoting. That's where the department is focused on. And I'm not saying it all has to be in one portfolio, but I think you have to look at what capabilities do you need to be survivable, to be able to accomplish, execute all of the operational plans that the joint staff develops. So I think that's where I was getting at with that is, okay, if you need to you know, get forces on this island to secure maybe a Chinese intrusion into the Philippines, Spratleys or something, if, if that's your mission, you should be able to look across the different capabilities that you have and say, okay, the Navy should be pursuing a suite of capabilities that enable forces to be able to be transported quickly across the whatever waterway they need to traverse. You need air assets, maybe manned or unmanned to prevent air forces from strafing the troops that are being landed. You're saying that like in the current construct, there's like a requirement and a budget and kind of an organization in the acquisition side. They're all aligned, right? Like I have a requirement for a bunch of program elements that map to a program of record for the F-35 and then F-35 program office. But in this new construct, I have a portfolio, like a program executive office whose capabilities are C4ISR or aircraft. And those don't map one-to-one to a requirement. There's not like a requirement for just build me a bunch of aircraft and C4ISR and different capabilities that can be composed. The requirement is like a military outcome, the capabilities are orthogonal to that and feed that in a different way. And then the acquisition people go get that or what's yeah, going on? I think, I think we've lost sight. And I think when you look at the acquisition system, if you asked a PEO what their overall, what operational plans they are supporting, I, I don't think they'd be able to tell you very clearly. And so I think that's where, I think it's a change for the department, but I think it's a change for Congress too, is we know the wars that we're probably going to have to fight in the future. And so aligning these portfolios to more clear mission areas. And, you know, I think you can do it by capability. I think you can do it by clear mission areas. And I think you can do it by ISR platforms or man platforms. I think you can do that, but I think there needs to be better linkage to the operational outcomes that you need. And I think that's the only way where you really start to get smart with, okay, what commercial technologies do I need to look at? Because I have this challenging space to operate in. I can't do it with all the stuff I have today, or I can't do it and be resilient or not just rely on a single platform. So I think that's kind of what I was getting to is just creating more of that operational alignment and then mapping that up to strategic capabilities that you could communicate to to Congress. 
And just to add to Matt's point, when we have a program-centric environment, all the bureaucracy that gets added to it from the, you know, the two-year budget, the two-year requirements, all of the acquisition document and processes, we amortize that by building major systems. So then given it'll take 10 years to build this major system that we you know, have spelled out all up front and then baseline our programs against, you know, when we do prototyping, it's against that predefined solution. We're baking in at least one technology miracle to occur over the next decade in development. But if we manage it more as a capability portfolio, to your earlier point of, say, Air Force has a combat aircraft, well, their overarching mission may be air superiority as one of their high-level mission areas. So they can build a suite of capabilities. If Navy C4I had managed more as a true portfolio, as opposed to 30, 50 individual programs, you can lay out the high-level requirements, ideally more budget flexibility, which you all have talked about, but really work through I could pull in more technologies from DARPA, the labs, FFRDCs, from industry large and small, and continue to prototype a suite of investments, a suite of capabilities to be delivered, and then go attack that problem, go attack that mission. So one of the uh, stepping stones to these portfolio budgets is going to be an innovation fund. And we've been hearing a little bit about potentially a new innovation fund coming back. We had the rapid prototyping fund and the rapid innovation fund. They went away a couple of years ago and now it might be back. But some folks also complain, this is just a slush fund. And then if you have these portfolio budgets, let's say at C4ISR level for a service, that feels like a super slush fund. So what would you say to folks who complain about, isn't this enabling a slush fund and like the services are just going to go off and do something stupid and we can't control them. Yeah, I guess that goes to the accountability piece, Eric. I know we've, I think we've talked a little bit about this, but I think the challenge right now is that because everything is so top down driven, I don't believe that acquisition leaders actually feel empowered to pursue when they see an opportunity. I don't think that, well, for sure, they're not empowered because they don't even have the authority to in many cases. They don't, they're not entrusted to say, you are a general officer, you've been confirmed by the Senate. You're a designated program executive officer. You have 25 years of experience. Here are the things that we need you to solve. We need you to provide the capability to support these operational plans. And here is your general portfolio of, of capabilities that we need you to pursue and get find the best in, the best of breed kind of thing. There's not that accountability right now to say, go do that. Go find the best things out there. And I, so I think that's the fundamental problem to, to your question there is not the accountability. It's not a slush fund. It's a allocation of funds to a responsible official to go execute a mission. So that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah, there's. I was rereading uh, Skunk Works from uh, Ben Rich recently, and I was just struck in there uh, how much it was like personal in terms of a lot of the decisions that were being made at the time. It's just, I trust Kelly Johnson, so I'm going to give him $30 million for this F-117 contract. Not because I believe that he could, like that this makes sense, but because if Kelly Johnson said it makes sense, then I believe it. And they're complaining at the time, which struck me. That was like, even in the 50s, or this was closer back to the 50s, and he was saying like, oh, it's a real hassle sometimes to get a, a new spy plane program initiated when it takes weeks and sometimes months for it to get approved. 
And I'm just like weeks or months for a spy plane program, like of the size of the U-2 or the SR-71. That's not <laughs> dream of that day. <laughs> but it comes back to this thing of oversight here and accountability. Right now, it seems if you had a problem with a specific purchase or something, it's hard to know who's actually in charge of that thing. But the program structure sometimes obfuscates like who's actually in charge of that thing or the, the organizational structure. One of the real issues that I think we've been talking about for some time is this concept of a program of record and the acquisition program baseline as a method for oversight. And it seems like the whole thing that you guys are pushing back on, ultimately, when you get deep down into it, is this idea that before we really start development, we can make predictions. And those predictions are actual instantiations of the truth, right? What I predicted to be true is what's valuable and that's like the, the baseline that we will measure you against in terms of cost growth and schedule growth. So all of our metrics go back to these kind of financialized uh, metrics. 50% cost growth you've had, so you must be doing terrible. But then they're going after these fixed requirements is, were those the right requirements? Should they have pivoted? What other options or available alternatives were there that should have been chosen? So questions of opportunity costs rather than just money costs, like, oh, this thing costs $100 million, or it costs $50 million more than you said. I guess, thinking about oversight, and this is a very general question, but what is the alternative to that construct of the concept of an APB? Let's predict all the baseline, every technical requirement, how long it's going to take to get there, and then go execute, and we'll measure you back to that plan. If that plan is amorphous or changing, or I have all these small incremental efforts that are merging and diverging, and, and changing along the way. How can anyone provide oversight over that? How does Congress understand what's going on? You hit such an important point. And from a, the traditional oversight in the Pentagon, from what GAO is doing, they want that clear baseline and measure you against the baseline, particularly the cost. But we can't, it, it's a fallacy in, in the modern era to then say, we're going to find all the requirements up front, written by someone who often says, I've used the legacy system. I want it to be like the system only 25% better. And then we're going to do a detailed cost estimate and figure out to a, a certain confidence level how much that's going to cost. We're going to put together an act strategy and baseline your program measure against that. As, and that's the contract between the program manager and the decision. In the modern environment, we want to see more rapid prototyping, rapid fielding. Hey, I want to get a 50% solution out there quickly. Maybe DARPA, the labs industry has some commercial solution out there and see what's part of the possible. What are the current performance measures? Where do we want to go? How can we iterate on our concept, on our CONOPS and our TTPs and apply more of the commercial practices to the DOD environment? And then we can iterate. So get some initial capabilities out, whether it's MVP, a prototype experiment, challenge-based acquisition get some working capabilities out in the hands of the warfighters, and then take a pause and say, where do we want to go next? What's the growth plan? And maybe we explore two or three different, radically different approaches, see what's paying out, and then maybe invest in the top one or two and iterate from there. But it's a fallacy to say, we're going to find everything up front, baseline it, measure against it. As technology, operations, threats, budgets are all changing, so we have to be much more responsive uh, to those changes. And that's the core concepts of where Agile and DevSecOps is. Close collaboration with the users, iterate, and then from an oversight perspective to your point, it's you can do portfolio reviews. You can do, hey, this is what I've done the last six months this is where I'm headed in the next six months or a few years. And you can have check-ins, but it's a 
new dynamic, a new paradigm than just performance against me. Yeah, if I could piggyback on that a little bit. I think we, in our programs, we often set our schedule and we set our budget at the point in time in our program when we know the least about it. Before we've written any code, before we bent any metal, we've done any designs or had any reviews, we set these things. We should object when the budget and the schedule doesn't change. We should object when the budget and the schedule that we're working with today is the same as it was three years ago, five years ago when we first set it out, because that means we haven't learned, we haven't adapted, we haven't applied any of the learnings. And I think Pete nailed it when he said that this is a fallacy. We assume that if things are changing, then we can't track them, that if they're changing, they must be changing in a bad way. Like we should really insist that our budgets and our schedules and our other things should change and adapt to the conditions as we learn more. And Eric, back to your question earlier about the slush fund, there's this sort of folklore about slush funds that we're objecting to the flexibility we're really objecting to is the lack of transparency. And it is possible to have agility and flexibility in in the way we manage money and requirements and schedules to have this flexibility, this ability to, to changing conditions in a way that is reportable in a way that is visible, that is, is honest and transparent and open. And like Pete said, it's this fallacy that if it's changing, then it must be, that I must not be able to watch it. I must not be able to, to have insight and oversight over it. Of course, we can have insight and oversight on things that change. We do that all the time. Uh, it's the static things that worry me. It's when the budget doesn't change at all. That, that, then I'm thinking someone's not paying attention. It reminds me what you just said. What if venture capital made all of their funding round decisions, seed, series A, B, C, all at once, all at the seed stage? Um, right. that, that venture capital firm would probably go out of business, but that's the way that the, the DOD kind of runs itself, right? Absolutely. And, and I think I heard this quote somewhere, and I wish I could recall who said this because I thought it was so brilliant. If you can predict the future, then it's not the future. If you, if you think you're predicting the future, what we're really doing is describing the present. So if you can predict the future, then it's not really the future. And so, yeah, I think just like that venture capital firm would just go out of business if they just locked everything down and disallowed any change. Or if you can predict the future, why aren't you at a hedge fund somewhere making a whole yeah. bunch of money? <laughs> what, what are you doing mucking around here in the us poor right. department of defense people? And if I can get back to the speed, thrift, and simplicity piece, it is easier to have accurate predictions about the future if the timeline we're dealing with is short. So I can predict tomorrow's weather pretty accurately. A week from now, my accuracy of my weather prediction is going to get worse. And 10 years from now, I can't really tell you what the specific weather on you know, June 10th of 2035 is going to be. So the accuracy of our predictions diminish over time is, is the general principle there. So if we're working on short schedules, we're more likely to have an accurate prediction of, of what's going to happen. Yeah. And I guess it's no surprise that Complexity theory started out of Edward Lorenz. He was studying yeah. weather patterns and, and then he kind of realized how much things can diverge just from tiny, almost unnoticeable changes. But I think it was really important what you said there in terms of visibility, right? Just because I don't have like this baseline where I predict the next 10 years and we're going to measure that doesn't mean that I can't provide insight into actuals, what I'm actually doing right now. And I feel like having more insight and more dedication to that um, actually allows us to better understand where we've been, where we are, and make those smarter, more incremental choices towards the future. And it just seems so often that the Department of Defense, but also like larger industrial firms that they might spend years, like just figuring out, should I invest in this project, doing analysis after analysis. And then once they get it going, it's on autopilot, right? And they never go back and check in 
on where it's been and, and how it's doing and, and making sure that they're getting the value that that they anticipated. And it seems like isn't a slush fund. And I, I'd like you guys to react to this um, and maybe get Matt back in here. But it, if let's just say I, I claim a slush fund is this innovation fund or a capability portfolio. But one could also make the, the case that today's process where I come up with an opinion-based requirement and then I set a program in motion for potentially a decade or more, we cost those out to completion, even if the fit up of the five-year budget only shows five years. That seems like a slush fund, right? Because once I initiate that program, it basically goes, it might be several years until development or operational test and evaluation and all the things that can happen. And then you get political consideration. It just keeps going and going. Versus uh, if you have more flexible funds, and but you're constantly testing those with the users, getting these quick iterative feedbacks, consistently making incremental decisions as to where the value is and where you should be going. That kind of interaction with the user and display of actual value, as opposed to working to anticipated value, seems more of the rigorous way to go about it. And potentially the current APB uh, route is actually the slush fund route where you have like these entitled programs that, that really can't be touched. So what's your reaction to that? Yeah, there, I, one of the things in our paper that we put was countering the idea of, of full funding. So there's, you know, there's been legislation on requiring programs to be fully funded, which I would argue during the EMD phase, you should probably have some fluctuations in there. It probably shouldn't be perfect, but you probably should be fully resourced during your EMD because if you're constantly being shortchanged, that may drive development issues. So I think there's a point to be made that you shouldn't like jerk different development programs around and give them $1 million next one year, then hundred million the next. So there's something to that, but in general, fully funding a program through its entire life cycle. Yeah, I agree with you. It's exactly, it is a slush fund. And it's also predicting the future that you are going to need, the Air Force predicts it's going to need 1700 F-35s. It's basically predicting that nothing will ever change that would influence uh, a shift in procurement quantities of that through the next 20 years. Essentially, you're saying that there's no way that you would ever need to, to change those quantities or that you might want to buy less in one year than another for, for various reasons. Yeah, I think that's that on that, that is probably the more troublesome approach versus saying, okay, there are, and this goes to the competition piece too. If you're competing different platforms, if you have flexibility in what platforms you go after. And there's no guarantee that one contractor is going to get this award for this platform or for this capability. Then you can actually start to say, let's do some trade-offs. Like, does this make more sense? What are the pros and cons of going down this route? Or maybe we need to get more competition in here because we're limiting our, uh, our ability to go after what we need. And so I think to Dan's point about transparency, I think it also gets to why we need to relax some control. There's a lot of control in this system and it's not just at Congress and it goes, it permeates through DOD, but I think this whole full funding thing goes to control is there's an idea that if you can lock these programs down, you have some control over making sure that all the different stakeholders for that, there's political business, all that stuff at play that you can ensure that's not going to be impacted. And so I think this whole portfolio approach also needs the control piece needs to be addressed in terms of let's look at the capabilities we need. Yes. In certain cases, some guard base might be impacted for a little while, or in some cases, the Raytheon contractor may not get this order and go to another one that's in a different district. There's going to have to be, I think, a relaxation of some of that, of trying to micromanage the defense budget. Terrific point. I think the control issue is, is really at the heart of this. And let's be precise with what we mean by slush fund. You know, if, if we're using a slush fund to refer to just a 
a bucket of funding that does not have a designated purpose. Like that's one definition of a slush fund, as opposed to a bucket of money that's like kind of off the books and there's no accountability, there's no insight into, it just disappears into a black hole. Like that, that's the bad version of the slush fund. But something that doesn't have a designated purpose, maybe we add the word yet, a, a bucket of money that is available to give us the flexibility to respond to emerging changes with appropriate insight and oversight and, and control and reportability. Like that still could technically fit the definition of a slush fund, but it, that might be a good thing to have. Whereas clearly if it's just off the books, nobody knows where that money went and, and people just make decisions willy-nilly about where to spend it. Obviously that's the bad version of the slush fund. And that's where I would use the word slush fund. But if it's just, hey, undesignated funding that is available for use in response to emerging needs as we learn more, that might be a, a good thing to have. Yeah, and I think that's an important point of where is it also managed? Is it a central DOD-wide fund? Is it distributed to the services and agencies or even down to the individual portfolios? Love to see a mix of all. If you have one central fund, obviously the decision authority or the small group, they're going to have their personal biases. They're going to put more investments in one area or another. Distributing it down to the portfolios, you want the emerging capabilities to play out. You want to put seed money against a startup or some mature technology and, and experiment with it to see if there's DoD applications. The DoD CTO, r &E, has published their top 10 to 13 technology areas where they want to you know, focus on tech modernization. Hey, there's going to be AI autonomy, cyber capabilities we want to invest in across DoD. So putting in you know, some money towards those projects to see, demonstrate the art of the possible, just like stage funding in venture capital. And then as things pay out, then you start you know, working in that transition to programs of record, starting new programs, working with the appropriate capability portfolios to then continue to evolve the next generation of capabilities. Yeah, I think that where the fund is, is interesting because you want it up and down the chain potentially, right? Like you want the top leaders to have their own ability to affect things with like potentially a bishop's fund, but not necessarily to impart their kind of views and biases throughout the entire organization because they might be wrong. And it reminds me of this quote from James Schlesinger and Roland McKean, who was actually one of the founders of the PBBE. They said, and I'm going to start a little quote here, quote, they, and they're referring to McNamara Systems Analyses, are especially prone to ignore certain costs, probably because those costs are hard to measure. If such costs are neglected, people are in fact insisting that performance be improved or efficiency increased, no matter what the cost. And so I thought that was just interesting because it's like, yeah, if when you have one person with one kind of point of view or one central office, they're not going to understand the full context of the problem. And other people in different places will have different views and they will say, hey, these decisions have these certain costs. But if you neglect those in the analysis, then you're going to like optimize and optimize for these certain parameters and then neglect all the costs that's in some respects. And to some degree, that's potentially what we get with some of these major programs that we've seen, like potentially in F35, where it's you're over-optimizing for one thing. And then it turned out certain assumptions were wrong or uh, technology turned out to be different or... I'm sure a lot of people said they predicted some of those problems. It's just somehow those costs just didn't get uh, wrapped up into the equation. And as Dan said, put all of our eggs in one basket. But I want to move on here. Oversight, I think ultimately, it seems like these issues, budgeting, oversight requirements have to be almost handled together in certain respects because they all kind of flow from kind of one logical view of 
what program management should be. And so I'm glad you guys were tackling that. I want to get to one kind of last piece of the issue here and, and get Dan back in on this. So what's holding us back with the workforce? Because if we provide certain flexibilities, as you said, having an amount of money that is flexible to be directed to highest valued uses isn't necessarily a bad thing, as long as I have insight into where it went and some accountability for that and making sure that it's not like this black hole. But that also presumes that we have this workforce that is trained and able to make those decisions in real time rather than taking this program baseline and just turning it into a contract for execution. So they're really kind of like contracted money managers rather than these big program decision makers. So would you push back on that characterization or what needs to happen on workforce? Oh, I think when we talk about workforce, you know, it's really about the people, isn't it? In, in almost any domain, any area of work, whether or not good work is being done really comes down to the people, and sometimes it's referred to as talent. And I like to distinguish between talent and skill. You know, so talent, oftentimes, the way I use these, these words, talent refers to your innate gifts. If you're tall or, or you can run fast or whatever. Skill is different. Skill is, is something we can learn. Skill is something you can develop. Now, regardless of how inherently talented one might be, skill is where the professionals do the work. And so our paper talks about some really specific skills that acquisition professionals can and should learn and, and develop and, and hone. And uh, we call them disciplines because we use that term disciplines to refer to a set of behaviors that can be studied and learned and mastered, again, as part of being a professional. And so that's things like discipline of speed. The, the chief of staff of the Air Force in his recent uh, paper, uh, Accelerate, Change, or Lose, talks about decisiveness as a skill that can be learned. Uh, that is the ability to make good decisions quickly. The ability to make good decisions quickly, heck yeah, that is something you can study and learn and get good at. And these five disciplines we came up with, uh, we think are just a strong foundation for the entire workforce to learn decisiveness, for example. How do you make a good decision quickly? There are techniques for this. There are methods for this. There are, this is a discipline you can study, master, study, learn, and master. Similarly, flexibility. Our ability to pivot in a new direction as we learn more. And we touched on that in some of the earlier conversations. Flexibility is a skill. You can learn to be more flexible. Skills of collaboration. We can learn to work together, building strong partnerships with a diverse range of contributors and learning how, again, as a discipline, as a skill, to effectively work together with a diverse collection of partners. These are just critical. They're foundational. We'd like to think they go without saying, but I think they're worth saying. So in the paper, we go through these five uh, disciplines that we think are key to developing the strong, effective, professional uh, workforce that is really essential to bringing the Pentagon into this digital age. If I could add one quick thing to that too, Eric, I think with what we've talked about so far today with how we do acquisition with programs and baselines and micromanaged budgets and things like that, I really think there's a psychological impact on the workforce is when you are told that you have no control of your destiny and forces above you will tell you what to do and you're just an executor. I think you start to embody that role and I think it changes how people operate. And it's why people are so fearful across the acquisition community. We see it fearful of change because it, they've gotten so used to it. They're almost, it's almost like Stockholm syndrome a little bit in, in the sense of this, like we're all just bought into this thing. And so I think if we make some of these other changes, I'm pretty positive about some of the other impacts on how that will change the workforce and how they operate. 
There's another quote here related to that quote, young people see that project and procurement officers live in a fishbowl environment and are subject to outside intervention and become targets for criticism. And then there is a recent, actually more, more than 15 years ago, the second Volcker commission, they talked about how those who enter the civil service often find themselves trapped in a maze of rules and regulations that thwart their personal development and stifle their creativity. The best are underpaid, the worst overpaid, too many of the most talented leave the public service too early, and too many of the least talented stay too long. And this was a national commission on public service. That gets to the heart of the professional development to the acquisition workforce and modernizing how we're doing training with all of the things they need to learn to navigate this complex environment. Is sitting in a classroom for weeks on end the right approach? Now, how can we break down the lessons into bite-sized chunks and have more podcasts and videos and short, digestible lessons, and then immediately go and apply them? Whether you have a discussion in a cohort, you apply it on the job to your practice. Now, with all of the new concepts coming out, hey, how do I do another transaction? What's this thing about digital engineering? How do we digest that for the workforce and feed it to them in a modern approach that is not sitting in a classroom for six weeks with PowerPoint teaching you the policy. Really get the hands-on practical application, the proper collaboration tools so that you could then work with your peers, work with folks across the services and agencies, and really apply these modern approaches in adopting that critical thinking we always strive for. So I want to move on here from, we've talked about the acquisition system, budgeting, requirements, oversight, workforce. And overall, when you look at the past, over the past 60, 70 years, there's been this pendulum of defense acquisition reform that kind of keeps going back between centralized and decentralized control. Andrew Hunter put it to me once, it was like, he called it like a helicopter because it goes between cost, capability, and time. And I can't really remember the last time, I think capability was maybe in the 50s and potentially the 80s, but it seems like we've been in a time-based decentralized manner recently. Before that, it was cost-focused and centralized back in the late 2000s, early 2010s. But we've been definitely over the last five years strongly moving in the decentralized control direction. You had a great article about last year on your Acquisition in the Digital Age blog, and you were talking about there's been we've been moving in the right direction, but the objective of some is to push us back towards the more centralized view. And so I'd like you to think about, or at least explain, how would we know when we're definitely on the path of that pendulum going back towards centralization? And when do you, do you think that's coming or when do you think that's going to happen? The jury is out for where we're going to go. I think some of the key political appointees that the new administration has selected are, have the right mindset. That they're moving in the right direction to say, given the pace of change in operations, threats, technology, we need that speed and adaptability. Congress has been a great partner. Do middle tier, do software acquisition, you know, break from the you know, traditional bureaucratic elements. Go fast and then iterate and learn and continuously improve. But there are still some within the Pentagon and, and elsewhere that say, where's your APB? Show me your performance against the cost baseline. Where are the standard cost schedule performance metrics that I'm used to managing? And where's your EBM data? And it's getting that mindset shift. It's a cultural shift. Truly understanding why they're asking for it. What are they trying to do? Getting to the root cause of what are their objectives? And each of the functional areas have valid concerns from a cost, from a test, from a sustainment, all critically important areas. How do we do interoperability smarter? 
Maybe we don't define it up front in adjacent environment. So getting that, having those serious discussions, what are the clear objectives we're trying to solve? Are there modern approaches to the way we do business? And enable that more flex, speed and flexibility. And, and the challenge we're always discussing with this cultural bound is getting achieving the right balance of speed with rigor. That it's not, hey, let's just go fast for the nature of going fast and we'll just you know, skip testing because we don't have time for that. And, and Dan could talk at length about, about that aspect. It's striking the right balance of, hey, there's smart rigor. It's, when you do agile and DevSecOps, it's not, hey, I'm going to throw out all documentation and I'm just going to do it willy-nilly as the Wild West. No, there is actual rigor to some of these core processes that are often more rigorous than traditional software acquisition has been done in the past. So achieving that right balance, getting the cultural discussion between the functional organizations, oversight, the programs, Congress, GAO, say, here are the objectives, here's the environment we're in, here's what we're trying to achieve, and then let's collaboratively shape what the new set of metrics are, new set of controls, you know, the guardrails, uh, and then continuously improve our operations. Yeah, I just piggyback on that a little bit, and there's this sort of weird acquisition folklore, these odd little rules of thumb, like faster, better, cheaper, pick two, or the cost of speed is quality, as if it's impossible to have speed with rigor. And I think at the root of a lot of this is folklore and self-fulfilling prophecies and failure to really look at the data, you know, what, what the data actually shows. And so uh, Professor Howard McCurdy wrote a terrific book called Faster, Better, Cheaper, where he looked at NASA's experiments in the 90s with low-cost access to space. And you read the book, is terrific. But the, the summary version of it is that NASA proved, uh, and I don't throw that word around lightly, uh, but NASA proved that it is possible to simultaneously improve your cost, your schedule, and your performance. And it involved portfolio management approaches, flexibility, all the things that we've been talking about here. You put all those together and it is possible to do best in class, first in class, advanced new technologies in hugely difficult environments where the stakes are really high and do it in a way that is faster and better and cheaper. All three, you don't have to just pick two. I had a guest on a few months ago from a cost estimating background and he took the view that faster, better, cheaper was actually a failure. And that's why they abandoned it. And I think you had a very different opinion of why that kind of came to an end. What's going on in that dynamic? How do people have these different views of the exact same thing? Sure. So my research into that area began, interestingly, I was at a conference and a buddy of mine, we were talking about space and stuff and somehow faster, better, cheaper came up. And he said, oh, faster, better, cheaper. We all know how that turned out, don't we? And I was like, yeah, no. Actually, I don't know how that turned off. Can you tell me? It turned out. Can you tell me? And he blushed and said, actually, I don't know either. So we were one head nod away from both agreeing that this was a terrible idea, even though none, neither of us knew anything about it. So I said, all right, I'm going to go do some research. So I'll give you two data points to illustrate what really happened with Faster, Better, Cheaper. Uh, they launched a total of 16 missions under this umbrella. Of the first 10, nine succeeded delivered best in class, never been done before, advanced space technologies, under budget, ahead of schedule. They had a 90% success rate over the first seven years. In 1999, though, four out of five missions failed. So they went from a 90% success rate to a 20% success rate. Ouch. So in 1999, people said, oh, faster, better, cheaper must be inherently flawed. The method clearly doesn't work. Let's toss it in the trash. But as an engineer, when I look at, it, at, a, at that kind of data, and I say, huh, we had a 90% success rate for seven years. And then in one year, the success rate gets flipped on its head. That doesn't lead me to conclude that the method is fundamentally flawed and never could work. I think something changed. 
And in fact, that was NASA's conclusion as well. There were two major reports that looked into Faster, Better, Cheaper. There was a blue ribbon panel and an IG report. They both concluded Faster, Better, Cheaper worked. Faster, Better, Cheaper was successful. And what happened in 1999 is people began adopting the slogans and the, the superficial versions of this, but not treating Faster, Better, Cheaper as a deep engineering practice as they had for the, the, the first time. So where Faster, Better, Cheaper failed is when they treated it like a, a bumper sticker uh, and not a deep engineering practice. And that's what went wrong. But they were pretty high profile fails and they were all clustered in that one year. But we really ended up missing the, the, the point on the larger portfolio assessment, like doing all the math, which is how they really should have handled it. And one of the other challenges is that the Stardust mission was part of the Faster, Better, Cheaper portfolio. I think it launched in 98 or 99, but it was on like a seven-year mission to go fly through the tail of a comet, collect some particles and bring them back to Earth. It succeeded, but not until 2006 or 2007, by the time that those particles were returned to Earth. By that time, like that's a data point that didn't get included in the assessments of Faster, Better, Cheaper, because in 99, they, they ditched it. And then 2006, said, oh, here's another example of a successful Faster, Better, Cheaper mission that didn't get included in the calculations and the assessments uh, in previous years because it was still en route to Comet Vilt 2, I think was the name of the comet. Maybe NASA's looking fondly upon that when they look at James Webb or, or potentially the SLS rocket. Bingo. Um, and it's one of those pendulums. It goes back and forth. We love, we love it. We hate it. We love it. We hate it. So, <laughs> Well, one of these things, and I don't know if this is a pendulum or not. I was listening to Lieutenant General Dennis Krall, who is like the CIO at the, the J6 and the joint staff, and he's supposed to be heading up all the joint, all domain command and control. And he was actually looking at the kind of budget and oversight type of process that he was saying, this system that we have today, it's an industrial era system. It worked well then. It was good for that time. But now we're moving into a new digital era where in the business world, we're seeing things being run differently and we need to adapt with it and change with it. There was nothing inherently wrong with that system. It was right for the time in the hardware oriented kind of world that we were in. And now we're just moving into more kind of digital technologies, software defined everything. So we need to move along with it. And I guess in my view that it was always a mistake, right? To have done these kinds of APBs, multi-year planning processes, waterfall breakdowns, right? Like the auto industry, and this is something Bill Greenwald always says, and I thought I always think it's a good point that the auto industry, like McNamara was president of Ford very shortly, but he was the comptroller there. And they ran on this waterfall whiz kid kind of mentality. And that's what made it into the DOD. And in the 1950s and 60s, it seemed like this was the best practice. And then by the 70s, those companies were being outcompeted by Japan, doing business very differently. They had their lean methodology, which actually, or lean manufacturing, which is different than like the lean stuff we talk about in like the startup world. But ultimately, it has a lot of that same kind of uh, flavor to it. You guys have in your blog and at MITRE, you guys talk about acquisition in the digital age. So can you just talk about this arc of history? Do you see that those old methods were right for the time we just need to move? Or do you think we had fundamentally made a misstep in the 60s, 70s, and we were doing things better in the, in the old days, and we just need to find those principles and then update them for the modern environment? So I go to software real quick. We talk about the, the waterfall method. You go back and you read Royce's paper from 1970 about the waterfall method, where he lays it out and all looks very rational and logical, step-by-step, step, first this, then that. And then he describes it on page three, for people who got to all the way to page three of his paper, 
this is a high risk method that has never been shown to work. And I feel like people just, they got to page two and saw that pretty diagram and says, oh, let's go do this. He said, if you don't expect to do it twice, if you don't do it twice, expect up to whatever percent increase. So exactly. we always have these, he had these little arrows going back but it's like the instantiation of the waterfall technique. Somehow we just had that. We just did it once. Offered so many nuances and so many critiques of like this seemingly obvious approach to doing work is a bad idea. And then the diagrams that he came up with actually end up looking a lot like the DevOps type things we do today with more iterations and more, you know, it's not just a linear start from A and go to B, go to C type, type approach. And, and so, yeah, so was it never a good idea in the first place? I'm not sure Waterfall was even an idea in the first place. I think he was criticizing it and not proposing it. I'd hate to say oh, it was a bad idea from the start. Yeah, it was an example of how not to do it. And for whatever reason, maybe people didn't flip to page three of his paper and just adopted the, the method despite his original critique of it. Let me toss it over to Matt. I think you were going to say something too. I was just going to say that I'm just going back to the McNamara era. I, I guess I always thought with World War II, the way that I always viewed and McNamara was a, I think he was a Lieutenant Colonel working for, uh, for General LeMay during World War II. So he came from that era where he got to see just how robust and dynamic the, the innovation technology base, whatever you want to call it at that time, was. So it always struck me odd that he saw World War II and he saw bombers and fighters and tanks and, and all this stuff being developed rapidly and iteratively and just doing all the things that we're talking about today, tapping into all of the small businesses across the entire country, getting ideas from a million different places. And none of it was about predicting. Like nobody really put specs together for the P-51. Nobody put specs together for the B-29. It was, it basically was like, we have this mission we're trying to do and we wish we had something that could get after some of these things. And yeah, there was probably some, we want to fly really high and we want to be able to drop a lot of bombs. But, and he took that, I, I think he just, it's amazing that he took, he left the whole war to uh, lesson and then went and adopted the type of system that he did when he became Secretary of Defense. It always struck me because when you read Freedom's Forge, you just go, wow, this, a lot of this stuff happens spontaneously. And Dan's written a lot on this with innovation. So much of it is spontaneous that you can't predict how things will come together, how one person's idea will spawn a whole new way of thinking. And then 10 more ideas pop up from that. And no, I don't think it was ever right. I think there was probably all kinds of dynamism in the defense sector, just like there is today back when I think they probably lost a lot of opportunities by operating the way they did. I think today we are definitely digital transformation has sped things up. I think technology is moving more rapidly. So definitely, I think it's maybe a exponential from what it was when McNamara first devised his, his approach. But yeah, I don't think, I don't think this was ever the right way. I think I would argue pretty strongly that the way that we've done with baselines and stuff was never the right way. I think we've, I think we've always limited ourselves. Just one final point on that, whether it was good at the time or not, now going forward in the digital age, the industrial age bureaucracy the DOD is burdened with poses the biggest threat to our ability to win future wars. What we've been struggling with for years is when you try to change a decades-old massive bureaucracy like the DoD, every little change is a battle. Even though, even if you can convince them on the why, getting the how, getting the processes, the policies, the statutes change is a huge burden. In an ideal world, we would have a skunk works where we would design a new digital age Pentagon. And we would, from a clean sheet of paper, design requirements and budget and acquisition, all the associated processes. 
say, in a smarter digital world, we're embracing portfolio management, speed and agility, simplicity, thrift, all the right buzzwords. It would be that's the ideal environment that we can go off, spend a year or two or a few years and, and go off and design the better system. So what we've been trying to do is lay out what that future to be state is, but then it's going to be the hard work of dragging each of these processes, sunsetting, divorcing yourself of old processes, and then migrating to the new. Yeah, it seems like with respect to that, you don't even, you wouldn't want to take that Pentagon transformation because we've already been here for so long and kind of like this big bang moment, right? It's, it's almost, what is that desired end state? But then how do you roll it out in an incremental agile way, learn from what you're doing? But then it also feels like the drawback is how do you not end up with a couple program offices or areas where you have those flexibilities and they're like coddled, right? By, by the higher ups rather than having that real enterprise change that allows you to get moved forward rather than just expecting it out of, oh, you program office, you do DevSecOps now, but everything else stays the same. And is that thwarts any developer's efforts go in that direction? So how do you think about, real quick here, I want to get to a couple of quick fire questions, but how do you think about, how do you get people incentivized to tackle this and, and roll it out incrementally? If you want to follow up there, Pete. I, I want to hand that on to Dan, because I think you hit on a few of the points that Dan regularly talks about. Yes. The question is, how do you help introduce that change? Is that where you're going with this? Yeah. I've, one thing that I found that's really quite true when we're pushing for any kind of change is that the status quo appears inevitable when viable alternatives are not readily visible. So let me say that again. The status quo appears inevitable when viable alternatives are not readily visible. So a lot of our work is just trying to make these alternatives more visible to say, hey, here's another way of doing things. And, and you're right, I, I certainly have strong opinions about whether these things were ever a good idea in the first place, but I could be wrong on that. Maybe they were a good idea in the first place. Fine, but there are viable alternatives available to us now that maybe always were available to us or maybe they weren't. Who cares? They're available now and here's what they are. Here's how they work. That's so much of the work that we've been doing is telling these stories, giving examples, showing you know, the precedents that, that have been set that we could follow that are different than status quo precedents. Because again, we find different people get convinced by different things. Some people want to hear data. Some people need to hear stories. Some people want to see how this fits into the larger strategy. And so we try to do as much of all of that uh, as we can. But in large part, it's just opening people's aperture to help them see, hey, there is another way to do it. Let's talk about this alternative uh, and explore that as a possibility. Okay, so I'll, let's wrap up here with, I'm going to go down the line with you three guys and let's get some rapid fire responses. So first, do you agree or disagree with the following predictions for 2025? First, other transactions awards will be greater in 2025 than today. Let's start with Matt. Greater. I don't think you can put that. I don't think they're going to be able to put that back in the box. It's <laughs> too far. I just hope that they get more flexible and not less. Okay, Pete. Greater. Uh, they'll be used smarter, uh, but we'll definitely see uh, huge success stories over the next few years. And Dan? Yeah, I certainly hope so. I think they've got a lot of momentum behind them. And again, we're seeing them as more of these examples of alternatives to the status quo. So yeah, I'm going to go with greater. All right. Next one here. Most defense firms will be CMMC level three certified by 2025. Start off back with you, Matt. Oh, God. I don't know. I think they'll, I think cybersecurity, they will have, let me just put it this way. They'll have a better cybersecurity posture. I think that point has gotten out, whether CMMC stands, we'll, we'll see. Pete, any ideas? 
I think there's going to have to be a, a different model than CMMC to ensure that we have cybersecurity across the enterprise. And Dan? And I would say if we establish CMMC as the standard, then companies will figure out a way to comply with that standard and on, on paper, if nothing else. But hopefully we will also go to the, the deeper level of a stronger cybersecurity posture. All right. I don't know if any of you guys have insider baseball, but all three military departments will have operational hypersonic missiles by 2025. Any predictions there? Actually, we just saw the common boost vehicle for LRHW in the Navy. They just recently had a test fire that was supposedly successful, but will they have an operational hypersonic missile by 2025? What's your thought, Matt? I'll, I'll beat that. I'll say 2023. Oh, great. <laughs> Pete? I haven't been following it that close, but I hope once figures it out, they share it with the other. So I'm confident in the next four years, we can get there. And Dan? And I'm going to plead ignorance on this particular type of technology, but also plead confidence in Matt's ability to predict this stuff. Whatever Matt said, that makes sense to me. Okay. So what's the biggest barrier to entry for non-traditional firms to the defense market? Let's uh, start with you, Dan. Oh gosh, the biggest barrier to entry for non-traditional firms is probably, uh, I'm going to go with awareness of the opportunities. I'm not sure that they're really seeing the opportunities that are available to them. Okay. So there's a problem with not beta Sam. I think it's just Sam now getting those solicitations out there and awareness of what people can be working on. How about you, Pete? I'd say complexity from the wide array of policies, processes, all the compliance that they need to do, even if they see the good opportunity, even if they get a you know, government you know, customer bought into it, it's then sorting through all of the array of you know, IP issues and, and CMMC compliance and, and other stuff that it, it's overwhelming. And Matt? Yeah, I think I, those, I think those are both right. I think the key will be to not, not make them a fringe entity as they are now operating only in cyber, the cyber thing and to make them an integral part of our innovation. So is that kind of like a, an answer of the valley of death is the greatest, biggest barrier to entry? I think it's basically getting, we need to get to a point where right now they're willing to play. We need to get them to a point where they see the value long-term for them. It's not just getting some great, some kind of cybers money, but it's becoming a long-term player in the defense industry and contributing new ideas and innovations. So yeah, valley of death or just the making the price of compliance worth or whatever bureaucracy you have to deal with worth it because you know that if your product is really good, you can scale it. Great. And what program initiative or technology are you most excited about? Let's start with you, Pete. I got to think about that one. All right, Dan. So um, selfishly, I'm still really excited about the adaptive acquisition framework that really set out to bring more critical thinking and more adaptability into the acquisition workforce. I just think that program, we, we haven't squeezed all the juice out of it yet. And I think it's uh, well postured to continue to be really impactful in the foreseeable future. Matt? Digital technology is going to roll the day. I think there's too many things we can do there to provide capabilities. But in terms of cutting edge, I think quantum computing is going to basically be a game changer. It's going to throw half of our con ops out the window and it's going to make us rethink a lot of things. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about where quantum goes. Yeah. There's a couple different ones. You're most excited on quantum computing. There's also like quantum key distribution and other types of there's quantum sensor type stuff as well, but quantum computing, is that kind of scary for you? Because they say China is pretty far ahead of the U S in many respects in, in quantum computing of uh, do you have it? it does that yeah, they do seem to maybe be investing a little bit more, but I don't know. There's IBM, there's a bunch of different companies that I think are, I, I don't think the code has been cracked yet in Google. I don't think the code has been cracked yet, but even if they do, I think once, 
once everybody starts to adopt it at scale, it'll be an equalizer, but it'll also, it also change like the fixation on cybersecurity. So yeah, cyber, the, the quantum computing is exciting. The quantum keys, the quantum sensors, quantum communications, all that stuff is, I think, is this going to be, this is going to be a different threat environment. It'll change the way we, the change the way with some of the threat vectors we have today. By the way, I, I was expecting it was Dan, but maybe it was you, Matt, who wrote this uh, sentence in your uh, paper, software is the most important factor in our national security with a capital, the. So that was Pete. <laughs> oh, go figure. So it was Pete. And you're actually head of the software acquisition pathway for MITRE, right? Support, supporting ANS. So actually, let's get back to you. What's the most important program yeah. initiative for technology? Well, I'm really excited about Space Force's acquisition environment. Uh, and they are in a unique position to, as the newest service, to structure and shape the acquisition environment in a new way. Space Force rolled out a great digital vision a few weeks ago and really focusing on the modern approach. Coach John Raymond is looking for bold ideas. So don't just apply the old SMC model, but really explore novel approaches, much more commercial technologies, commercial solutions. Just we've seen SpaceX disrupt the ULA uh, approach. So really applying that model to broader space acquisition enterprises is a key opportunity I'm excited about. Yeah, I'm, actually, I'm also the technology that I would point to, and it's two technologies together, a solar and wind or any kind of renewables. As we see the, the globe shift from dependency on, on oil and renewable fossil fuels, that is going to fundamentally shift balance of power and stability in some really important and interesting parts of the world. That's going to have major military implications in the foreseeable future as well. Yeah, I was reminded like there can only be one cheapest source of fuel. Uh, and it's just when that thing flips from carbon fuels, that would be a momentous event. And who knows, maybe it's, there's a lot of people bullish on nuclear power as well coming back. And we've seen some of those articles on there'd be like many nuclear power reactors at bases and stuff like that. But it, it's, I guess, one of these things, right? There's a lot of alternative fuel sources. Geothermal is one of those. That's a lot of people are also bullish on. It's good yeah, that we're not putting all of our eggs into just one of them. Right. And whichever one we flip to, I think it's going to have implications for Russia, for the Middle East, for China in terms of global superpower-ness. Yeah, but what on what Pete said, I was also actually pretty, I'm pretty excited about what the Space Force is doing, but I don't understand why there's certain folks in Congress and other places that are keep like bringing up that they see as more the same. And then they talk about older programs with all their cost growth and then how next-gen OPIR looks like SIPR. And do you disagree with that view that Space Force is doing more of the same? Or do you, do you see them as really moving forward and maybe it's you know, Congress and otherwise <laughs> that's holding them back from their own vision. So there's the individual programs and processes today, but it's the opportunities ahead. So yeah, you can criticize any one program or some of the structures today. They, they have a new environment, getting clarity on requirements and clear new missions and an architecture and a structure there. So uh, it's more of, there's a window of opportunity over the next two to three years to redesign it smartly and not just bring over all the legacy baggage, but really design it for that digital age. So that's the clean sheet opportunity I'm excited about. Dan Ward, Pete Modigliani, Matt McGregor, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Hey, thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.